everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast, where we talk about all things related to athletic performance, rehabilitation, and wellness. My name is Dr. Lauren Falk, and I will be hosting today's episode. Today, I am joined by Coach Jack Hackett, where we dive into injury prevention for distance runners. Specifically, we'll cover things like running volume, um, volume increases, warm-up and strength and conditioning for injury prevention, as well as other hot topics such as foot placement, footwear, and dispelling a few myths surrounding injury prevention as well for runners. So if you are an athlete, coach, or just an avid runner, I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of this episode. Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Falk, and I am joined today by Jack Hackett. Jack was an exercise physiology major and a collegiate runner at Marquette University for four years, where he ran cross-country in the distance events and track. Following his time at Marquette, he continued to train and ran professionally for a brief period of time before an injury kept him from going further. Beyond running, Jack has worked at Performance Running Outfitters for many years, as well as he owns and operates his own company, where he is the head coach for Infinity Running Company, where we more uh, lovingly call it Infinity Run Co., I feel like. Jack is a seasoned pro on our podcast, not just because I like him, but because he shares such great info with all of you. So Jack, thank you again for joining us today on our podcast. Happy to join and glad that you at least tolerate and not like me. It's good. <laughs> we like you, we promise. Okay, so quickly before we get started, Jack, um, you have been on our podcast before, but it's been a little while. For So for those of you who have not yet, you know, quote unquote, met you, um, why don't you just share a little bit of with them about, you know, who you are, what you do. Just, you know, give us a little taste of Jack Hackett. <laughs> uh, we'll see if I can do it justice. Uh, yeah, so as, as Lauren said, I uh, am a running coach, and that's mostly what I'm on here for is to talk through Absolutely. Uh, those best practices and dispel some myths in the running world and trying to help keep you guys healthy and happy. Uh, I'll work with runners of, of all sorts, all kinds. I mean, really just runners is who I work with, uh, whether it's trying to run your first marathon or trying to run your fastest marathon. That tends to be, and it's not just marathon runners. I'll, I'll work with high school kids. Uh, a lot of people that, that I'll work with with Lauren would be... Adults, runners. Yeah, somebody coming back runners. from injury. Yep, uh, high school collegiate run. runners that are coming back from injury. All the way up through Olympic qualifiers. Yeah, Olympic trials qualifiers. Yeah. Olympic qualifiers, not yeah. yet, not yet. Hopefully. But. We got it coming. Um, but yeah, so Jack runs a wide span of things where he leans on his previous experience as an athlete. You know, he is very well read and uses a lot of current research to drive his decision making. And I think he really reflects that in the things that he shares with all of us. So we're excited to share a little bit of that knowledge today. So, you know, it's Wisconsin, it's April, it's spring, kind of, sort of. I mean, it's like high of 46 today, I think, but hey. But, you know, people are getting back out. You know, they're starting to run again. You know, feet are hitting the pavement. And, you know, my biggest thing today that I brought Jack on for is I really wanted to talk about injury prevention for runners. Oftentimes we get really excited. You know, season starting, let's go, it's getting warm out. And we really need to think about the bigger picture of what your running season needs to look like because there's nothing worse than having something that sidelines you and you don't get to enjoy this great sport. So 
Um, I always preach that it's really important to have a plan in mind, you know, before you start your running season and use these things now. It's always better to be proactive than reactive um, because that's what helps you enjoy your sport for the long term. So, you know, the biggest thing is, is let's just talk injury injury rate numbers in runners. You know, a general injury rate research consistently shows that you have about a 90% chance of getting an injury at least once per in per running season, if you will. So basically every time your feet are hitting the pavement and you're getting started again, there's a really good chance that you're going to pick up an injury along that way. Doesn't mean that that's going to happen to you per se, but research has been pretty consistent over the years that it does happen on a regular basis. But we feel that with you know, applying some of these things that we're going to discuss today, it can really help reduce your chance of that happening. So Jack, as you are training runners and you educate them, how do you help them work to prevent injury from a coaching perspective? So maybe let's even just start with the very common one. Let's talk about mileage and things like that. So yeah, the biggest thing is just having a plan that kind of gradually loads you. For most runners, most injury issues are actually just too much, too fast. It gets nice out, you decide, oh, I'm feeling great, I'm gonna go out and run 10 miles. Well, if you haven't been running more than three miles for the last couple months in the winter, all of a sudden that can be a big issue. Uh, It's it's really that too much, too fast. That tends to be the, the biggest thing that I find I'm actually pulling reins back on people most of the time, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to you know spurring people on, uh, you know whipping <laughs> whipping the horse per se. Yeah, it's a lot more just being cautious and careful about you know gradually building. Absolutely, I mean I can't tell you how many injuries I'll treat around this time of year where they'll say, "Oh, I was always doing my thirty minute runs on my treadmill inside. I got outside. It was warm. It was amazing, and I did like." five, seven, ten miles, whatever it was, because they felt, you know, that juice to go. And, you know, that definitely catches up to you. So I 100% agree. Now, is there a magic equation that someone can follow to make this decision? How do we know? So what's been brandied about for a long time has been this this 10% rule, that you shouldn't increase your mileage 10% or per more week, than 10% right? per week. Uh Studies don't actually kind of hold up on that. Uh, one of my favorites is it was 500 some runners, and they had one group that did 10% increases and another that did 50% increases. Uh, and the in, injury rate was basically the same between the two groups. That doesn't mean that you should increase your mileage 50%. I think the, the rule kind of connotates a principle that makes a lot of sense that we want to gradually build. Mm. Uh, but there's not necessarily a hard and fast fixed rule for it. It's going to depend a lot on your previous running history, on your previous injury history. Yeah. And, and probably most importantly, and this is something we'll talk about later is, is the level of strength that you have to absorb that work that we're, we're doing with running. Absolutely. And I think just think keeping in mind too, like if you're a novice runner versus an expert runner, People whose bodies have been doing this consistently and doing it well for years upon years or they've trained at a higher level, they can ramp a little differently than someone who is just starting to run for the first time, you know, and just kind of just remembering where you are in that spectrum is a good place to just keep that thought in mind and not, you know, get frustrated or things like that if you're not ramping like you thought you were or like you think you should kind of thing. So 
Um, I think that there's always training age is what we call it is really important to keep in mind as you're making those decisions and ultimately seek guidance. You know, I think a lot of people open up runner's world and they see that like couch to 5k training program or half marathon program that gets blocked out in there. You find one online and realize like those are just a template. They're not a hard and fast rule of what's right for you and your body. Yeah, it's a good in general rule of average, but as, as you've probably figured out by now, nobody's all that average. We're all unique in some mm-hmm. way. Absolutely. So kind of going off of the mileage conversation, so we just talked about, you know, building up per se and doing it in a semi-sequential way, listening to our body um, and having a plan. You know, there's been a lot of talk about like high mileage versus low mileage, you know, number of miles you run per week for those of you that kind of don't understand what we're talking about. Um, you know, and oftentimes I feel like right now high mileage is kind of getting a bad rap. Um, you know, the pendulum has swung, uh, in many different directions, many times over. And I feel like people are starting to appreciate quality workouts over quantity workouts, but I think that's also caused people to go away from high mileage a little bit, unless they're kind of being trained in that way. So talk to me about high mileage. Is it a bad thing? Not inherently, uh, and especially for reaching peak performance, to some extent you'd need higher mileage. Uh, But what they've actually shown, too, is high mileage can be protective for some injuries. Uh, Mm -hmm. Things like Achilles tendinopathy, which is a common runner's issue. Yeah. Uh, People with higher mileage running actually have less incidence of it, even when accounting for that time for injury. Hmm. I mean, like, obviously you think, oh, well, if you're hurt, you're not running as much, but they've they've kind of controlled for that in these studies and hmm. shown high mileage to be protective. Yeah, that's very interesting because you know, you'd think, like, tendon irritation, so high, like, lots of reps is, quote-unquote, bad. But, you know, sometimes we always talk about in terms of, like, how you're dosing exercise. Like, we often use plyometrics and certain loading parameters when we're treating things like that, that maybe just like you're saying, you're actually kind of consistently dosing that and building up their tolerance to that activity. Therefore, it makes it easier for them to tolerate things across a greater spectrum. Yeah, without doubt. And what what you were kind of hitting on, too, is as the proportion of faster, harder running, like those that higher Mm -hmm. quality it kind of naturally then means that you have to back off on the volume to some extent. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a give or take of what is going to make the most sense. And and what research is actually showing now is that there's uh, essentially two groups, one that's going to respond better to higher quality and one that's going to respond better to higher volume. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some kind of simple tests to figure out how uh, mm. or which group you'd kind of fall into. But essentially, you, you can just think back to your own training, and if you've responded well to longer training, you're probably one of the people that responds well to high mileage. If you've done well off of speed work, you're probably one of the, the kind of responders to that higher quality work. Absolutely. Um, what are some of those things that you do to assess to figure out if someone's a high mileage versus a low mileage kind of person? Early on, uh, when I'm working with somebody new, it, it comes down to A, looking at their training, B, some self-assessment, just asking that athlete what they've enjoyed more, because that that's part of it, is you want to enjoy the work you're doing. Uh, but then B, you can kind of just test it out. Have them do you know some higher volume type work, mm-hmm. see how they respond. Are they getting overly fatigued? Are they starting to lose sleep? You know, Is the effort higher than it should be for those types of workouts? And then kind of vice versa. You try some of the shorter, faster stuff and see, oh, is that wiping them out for a few days? Yeah. Then maybe, you know, we need to shift their training a little bit more 
the other way. Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, understanding how the body recovers and responds to a certain stimulus definitely guides the way quite a bit. So kind of moving past, you know, ramping up and number of miles per se, because basically it sounds like we're going to use the age-old answer those of, it depends. <laughs> depends who you are, what your training age is, you know, but that there are definitely some easier kind of slower ramps that you could use or some ways that you could self-assess to see where you're at and what you're responding to. But kind of moving into some of the things that are a little bit more concrete, if you will, that have been consistent to show some benefits for injury prevention for runners. Why don't you talk with us a little bit about things like warming up and stuff like that? So yeah, with warming up, uh, essentially for, for a runner, you think warming up sometimes is just easy running before a workout. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we're really talking about is even something a little bit more advanced than that. Things like, you know, some pre-activation work, mm -hmm. leg swings, uh, glute bridges. If you have the mini bands, kind of using those to, to Absolutely. kind of use your muscles a little bit before you go running. Anyone that's been around me, they know those <laughs> mini bands. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, I mean, I've stolen a lot from one or maybe borrowed or I'll give credit here. <laughs> I'll let least. you use it. <laughs> uh, because it, it is such a fundamental and important part to that. They've shown actually that it can reduce injury by up to half. Mm -hmm. uh, if you could cut your injury risk by 50% by spending five minutes before you go run, it's probably worth mm -hmm. it as opposed to getting five more minutes of running. Absolutely. But the trick with the active warmups are that they show that you have to be doing them every day. So it's not that, oh, I only warm up before my long run, <laughs> but I'm not going to warm up before my other runs. And I get it. Everyone's like, especially adults, we're all busy professionals. Sometimes it's like, oh, I just get home and I just got to go. But really those like five minutes can really be very pivotal if you're consistent with them on injury prevention. So just keep that in mind as you're prepping yourself and putting this into your plan, because just like Jack said, it's really, really worth it. But you got to do it and be consistent in order to truly get the benefits from it. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, that, that's such a, a big part to be consistent. You know, hitting 80%, 100% of the time is a lot better than mm -hmm. being 100% only, you know, 50% of the time or something like that. Absolutely. So warming up, activating our muscles, it gets your heart rate up, it gets your blood going, it gets you, because there's nothing worse than going from cold to running. You know, that's just not as ideal for any body type. Um, but so we're basically prioritizing kind of some things with our exercise selection prior to our running, just like you said, some hip work, some glute bridges. We're kind of reminding our body of those actions that we want it to take on while we're running, you know, getting active mobility going so that way we're not stiff going into our run, things like that. Do you have any season favorites of yours? And, and some of it depends on the athlete specific. So when, when I'm working with an athlete, we'll kind of build a plan specific to their needs. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, if an athlete's got Achilles issues, you're going to take them kind of through some ramp loading and uh, some kind of mobility to take that Achilles through that. Because like you said, if you go cold turkey into a run, that tendon's stiff and hasn't been warmed up at all. Mm -hmm. Running's pretty hard on it, or it can be. Absolutely. Uh, and that could be part of why they're having that recurring Achilles issue is just not warming up enough. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, that's just one example. There, there's 100 permeations <laughs> on that. Um, but yeah, just finding exercises that make sense for where you're coming from. Absolutely. So then kind of taking that one step further, um, strength. You know, in the running world... <laughs> 
that that pendulum again has swung in many different ways and for many many years it was like no no strength training for runners that's terrible <laughs> i don't want to get bulky <laughs> yeah i don't want to get bulky which by the way if you're if you're a legit runner you really can't get bulky the hormonal response won't let you get bulky <laughs> i've tried <laughs> it doesn't work if any of you don't know jack in person he's a tall skinny drink of water and he's tried very hard <laughs> to fill that physique out and it's just you know you keep that you keep that runner's physique going strong there. The good news is since I've been strength training a lot more, I've found I've actually hurt a lot less yeah. with running. So Your body's that. been a lot more durable. But, you know, literally living proof. But, I mean, I think people do often live that fear of, well, if I lift weights, I'm, I'm going to get big. And then if I get big, it's going to be hard to move and run. And I think that's kind of myth number one about, about a perception on strength training for sure. But let's talk about the benefits of strength training for runners. I mean, first and foremost, to think of it, I mean, this is about injury prevention, so it definitely decreases injury rate. I mean, they've shown that time and again. Uh, It's like anywhere from 46 to 64% on acute and chronic injury. Yeah, it it drastically reduces your injury rate. But the other reason is, A, you'll look a lot better for (laughs) swimsuit season now that this is coming up. Uh, If it ever warms up here. The real good reason is it will benefit your performance. Absolutely. Uh, Running is essentially how hard can you push the ground and how long can you fly in the air. And if you're stronger, you can push the ground harder and fly in the air longer and you'll be faster. And like you said, it just makes you more durable. You know, it, you know, if you're training your body to sustain stress greater than your own body weight, then it's going to make managing your body weight that much easier. The more durable you are, the more stress your body can take. And the more you can do that, the longer you can run or the faster you can run or things like that. So you're just kind of building those qualities that we want to see. But research has consistently showed that lifting one to two times a week can significantly reduce your injury rate by an average of about 50%. So it is really well worth building into your running calendar because honestly, the reason why I treat a lot of runners is because they weren't strong or not strong and they jump into running kind of head first. And because their body isn't necessarily as well prepared for the demands of what it's going to put on them, that's what causes them to break down. And here I am kind of trying to obviously address the direct cause of it, but then the bigger picture of like trying to implement that long-term thought process of, you know, how to keep build and keep your body durable for the long run. Yeah. Running's hard. (laughs) Yeah. I, I really don't think people appreciate how hard it is on your body. I mean, just a thought process of you basically from knee to the foot and ankle, you take on almost seven to 10 times your body weight every time you're landing. So just ask yourself, like, what have I done to prepare my body to take on that type of force? Now, Grant, I'm not asking you to go lift 500 pounds, <laughs> but just that moment of perspective of like, wow, that's actually a lot of force through my lower body. Am I ready for that? You know, and and also the concept of like building up to that, like I can take a little bit of that, you know, but so just a moment of perspective in terms of what it is that we're really trying to get our body to control. Okay. So another thing that has consistently been showing up in the research is shoes. Selection, how many? Like, take me through that. You are definitely the the house shoe expert, FYI. I always have everyone see Jack or people at Pro because they know way more shoes, way more about shoes than I do. But here's some really great facts about shoes. 
and um, how they can play into your running success. Yeah, one of the easiest ways to reduce injury, and this is one of my, my favorites, is just owning more than one pair of shoes to train in. Uh, a study looked at people training for a marathon, and the group that had more than one pair of shoes, on average, was 2.8 pairs, uh, but they were 39% less likely to be injured. I mean, just by having more than one pair of shoes, you could reduce your injury rate by you know, almost a half. Like, that's... Pretty significant and pretty, pretty crazy, especially if you think about, you know, how much a visit to a doctor or a PT or think about that MRI and your injury versus just getting another pair of shoes. Uh, And not everyone obviously is in a position to be able to do that. But uh, if you're able to, getting that second pair or third pair uh, can really reduce that, that injury rate. So is it that people are kind of consistently rotating their shoes during their training or kind of lay that one out for me of what you... Yeah, there's there's a few different kind of schools of thought. And I wish they would have broken this down in the research was, you know, how many unique pairs of shoes it was. Yeah. Because for, for some people that have more maybe sensitive feet, if you want to call it that, and they've found one pair that's working for them, you know, having just two pairs of that same shoe... And say one pair is your Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and the other is you know, that Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Uh, just having time in between when you're using those shoes, because it takes about 24 to 36 hours for that shoe to kind of fully bounce back. So mm-hmm. if you can give it some more time between uses, the foam will kind of rebound more and the shoe will last longer. Hmm. So it'll do a better job of that kind of force absorption uh, or shock absorption. Uh, so that's part of it. I think, though, ideally having multiple pairs of different types of shoes is kind of the best way to go. And that's where your foot will get, you know, stimulated in just slightly different ways in each pair of shoes. Yeah. So that would cut down, or in theory, that cuts down on the likelihood of a stress injury on a specific part of the body because your foot's interacting with the ground just slightly differently uh, in, in each of those kind of shoes. For a lot of people, they'll have kind of a rotation. Like I'll just use my, my own example. I'll have pairs that I wear mostly just for short, easy runs. They're a lot heavier, more cushion, uh, kind of more for, for those slow plotting days. Then I'll have some shoes that are kind of faster uh, for things like you know, tempo runs, track workouts, those kind of things, as well as some shoes that are lighter weight for longer runs. It, just kind of having a whole... You know, as many quivers in your in your or as many arrows in your quiver as possible just yeah. gives you some protection. Absolutely. There's years ago, um, out of Harvard, because there's a woman there that studies um the barefoot running and barefoot shoes, if you will. Um, but they actually had a really great study that showed there's an increase in muscle mass in the muscles that basically run between each of your toes, so kind of across the arch of your foot, if you would. Um, in those that were wearing like a minimal shoe compared to those that wear a very supportive shoe. And we could have a conversation a whole nother day about shoes on <laughs> and what they all bring to the table. But what's interesting, and this isn't me saying everybody go jump in barefoot shoes. But what's interesting is just that shoe that had a little bit less support, it really forced your foot to work a little bit harder is kind of what they're showing. Um, and so like you're saying, like having that variety of shoes that will literally challenge your foot, think about it as exercise for your foot and obviously under what appropriate setting, but there's a lot of different ways that that shoe selection can really benefit the development of your foot. 
Yeah, I think that's a, a good point then to to have that as like think of it almost like a medicine that you're dosing your foot with. Yeah. You wouldn't just go straight to taking a whole bottle of pills. You're going to want to kind of gradually dole that out over time to build that foot strength up, uh, which actually kind of segues into a whole different study. I know yeah, I had sent you absolutely. Uh, about, you know, like foot Pilates or, or foot mm-hmm. strengthening. Absolutely. It's similar to what, what the Harvard study was kind of looking at was that cross-sectional mass in, in your foot and getting stronger. Yeah. Uh, but doing that, reduced injuries by like a 2.42 uh kind of factor so absolutely i mean over half if i could comment from like a physical therapy perspective is i think it's probably a little bit cultural because we wear a lot of shoes in our culture but we in general as a people have very lazy feet you know they've been used to the shoe doing the work for so long no matter what shoe it is that we wear you know dress shoes running shoes whatever you know it's really done the work for a very long time and just for perspective feet should have the exact same dexterity as your hands they have the exact same practically the exact same bony and muscular structure yes but in general they should be able to grip and curl and you know really bridge and support and so if you take a moment to take a look at how your hands move and take a look at how your feet move it gives you that perspective of maybe those things that our feet are kind of naturally lacking that we could really work on you know, these, this concept of the research article that you share with me, that foot Pilates, is that, uh, and there's so many different foot exercises you could do, whether it's, you know, the act of trying to engage that arch or balancing through it or working on, you know, individual toe control. There's a whole host of them that are all great in their own right. But basically, what we're trying to do is we're trying to teach that foot to be stronger so it can help absorb force better. You know, because basically how that foot is falling dictates also how your knee position ends up or your hip or things like that. So, you know, we always say it's like a top down, bottom up. We have to address our support from the ground up as much as we do from the rest of our body, too. And so I 100 percent agree. We really actually those foot exercises are so important, like they're finding that it's helping reduce injury. But to me, it's almost like those are so important because we're trying to combat what our daily life does to our feet. Yeah, I mean, part of part of why there is East African domination in distance events is that for for many of them, uh, they'll grow up without shoes, or yeah. at least spend a lot of their time not in shoes, and and their yeah. their feet are just a lot stronger. I mean, honestly, you should take time and Google see them the, the feet because they don't look normal to us, yeah. but it's because they're actually strong and and able to move. One funny story to that. So one of my former athletes that I took care of, um, Wesley Career, who's won Boston, multiple LA, few NCAA yeah, a few NCAA championships, <laughs> Chicago, whatever. But the first year I was with him, um, we were racing at Notre Dame uh, early in the season on one of their golf courses there. And um, somebody clipped a shoe and he lost a shoe. And most people, when losing a shoe in a cross-country race, would be like, yeah, I'm done. Or, you know, I mean, you're racing a bunch against a, a ton of people with no shoe. What did he do? He kicked off the other and finished, like, top two. <laughs> and here I see this guy finishing the race with no shoes on. And, I mean, to me, there's no way I wouldn't have been able to do it, you know. And But he said, I looked at him, I said, Wesley, you're right? He goes, yeah, I do this all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you're it's true. Culturally, there are just other places where people actually train and or run without them, and they have incredibly strong feet to speak for it. Um, I digress, but it's a pretty funny story when you watch your guy come across the finish line with no shoes on. 
Yeah. Um, so kind of talking about feet, there's been a lot of commentary about like foot strike and cadence. Do, can those things help prevent injury? Talk to me about that, especially from a coaching perspective. Yeah. So I think to, to kind of start with the foot strike, there was this idea for a long time. And I know we talked about this on one of the previous podcasts, but there's this idea that a four foot strike is, is the best because mm-hmm. it has the best kind of profile of, of force kind of going through your leg. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the people that four foot strike are injured less often. Uh, but then, and I know I brought this up, but my favorite stat to kind of combat that is that the world championships in the marathon, two thirds of the runners were heel strikers. Mm-hmm. Like that wasn't a mistake. That wasn't a fluke. Like mm-hmm. that, that's how, you know, some of the best runners run. It's yeah. kind of through both, both ways. Uh, what they've found, and, and you can kind of back this up with some research, I'm sure, uh, is that where your foot lands in relation to your center of gravity, specifically during yeah. the plant phase. Mm-hmm. So maybe not necessarily where that initial contact is, but once you're getting your you're weight settled weight. Yep. onto your foot, that should be underneath your center of gravity or behind. Yes. Yep. Running at a really basic level is a, a free fall. Mm-hmm. If you can use that free energy to have you know your center of gravity kind of leaning forward and falling forward, uh, that's kind of the ideal situation. Absolutely. Yeah, that's honestly the bigger part of all of that. So a lot of the, the research basically using foot striker cadence, they were using like a timing to basically help you not reach that foot way out in front of you. If you're kind of running at that slower cadence, except for you because you have really long legs, so your cadence is slower than most. <laughs> so everything's relative. <laughs> but, um, you know, people who tend to run at that slower cadence, they really have that long reaching stride where that foot's going way out in front of them. And when that foot goes way out in front of you, you're actually having to, because it's out in front of you, you're literally decelerating yourself before you have to accelerate yourself. Whereas when you are getting that foot under you, you're not having to slow yourself down as much and you're able to accelerate more quickly and things like that. So also just think about from an injury perspective, if you have a longer, slower stride, that's more time that that foot is on the ground absorbing forces of your body and going again. Um, And so it's not necessarily that there's a magic number or magic, you know, foot strike position. It's just more that we don't want you to have to decelerate yourself to then accelerate yourself. You're putting a lot of extra stress on your body that's unneeded. So like Jack said, whether you're a four foot striker, you have a heel strike, whatever the case may be, it's just more that we want you to strike kind of or accept your weight under your body where you have more control of yourself. There's less extraneous things going on. There's less work involved in that situation. And then you get to accelerate out of it more quickly is kind of that bigger picture. Um, so I think, I feel like foot strike and cadence were cues of how people are trying to like, especially cadence was a cue to try to rein in those, you know, decisions yeah, that, that our body makes. <laughs> like way out in front of you strike. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and the cadence is a big piece of it. If you're, Cadence increases, you can't reach out as far in front of you. Mm-hmm. You have to kind of shorten your stride up. Yep. And I think for a lot, for, for most, especially beginner runners uh, or newer runners, that is kind of the lowest hanging fruit is just increasing that cadence yep. and, and kind of testing it out. Because it'll help you naturally start to find that. So again, cadence is a cue to help you test out that all those things, but it's not like a hard and fast rule. Like I must be at said number. Yeah. I know we talked about this in, in yeah. I think one of our previous podcasts, but the number that gets thrown around is 180. That's what you should hit no matter what. Mm-hmm. Well, it is pace dependent. So elite athletes, for example, will go from, 
you know, on average 210 when they're racing uh, down to like 170 something yeah. uh, on like their easy plot along days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that depends too on height as well. So mm-hmm. like I'm six foot four, six foot five. And my, when you run next to uh, your Olympic trials qualifier, what's your what's the cadence well, difference between you? Yeah, two? he hits like two hundred on some days, <laughs> and I'll hit like one sixty. Some some days, like on a slow, easy run, I'll be even below one sixty, but one sixty to one sixty. It's like three or four his steps for every one of yours. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not the same thing, and, and so again, as with pretty much everything we've talked about here, it depends on you, and it depends on the person, and yeah. and figuring those kind of things out. So I'd say the summary of that is that there's no, there's definitely no magical equation on that. You know, it's, there's no magical place that if you hit on your foot, this is going to prevent your injury. There's no magical cadence number, but more or less the idea of mechanically what you look like as you're interacting with the ground is kind of the more ideal situation, but that takes a lot of time and a lot of learning um, and you'll find your way, but just realize there's, there's no perfect way to do it. Everyone's kind of has their own way to make it happen. Yeah, and that's a lot of what I end up working with athletes on as far as like the injury prevention side of things is just figuring out the you know ideal place for you in all of these kind the of spectrum. spectrums and trying to you know set, set that person up to succeed. Get strong enough so that you can absorb that force. Get your cadence to a point where it makes sense and you're not absorbing that horizontal decelerative force. Yep. You know, getting uh, you know the right kind of rotation of shoes to help. Make it so that you can run well and prevent injury. All all those kind of things go hand in hand. Absolutely. So it's kind of a little bit of a myth in the running world about how those things play in. There's kind of probably a few other myths that lay out there in terms of what's going to prevent injury or, you know, make you better. Let's talk about, um, I really like this because as a physical therapist, I have perspectives on it. But for you as a coach to talk about this, I think it's really important. What's your perspective on stretching? I know we've talked about this a few times, and and I, uh, I am definitely not in the pro stretching camp. <laughs> that said, there is a time and a place for it for some athletes when mm. range of motion is a limiting factor. Mm. I mean, think think like a hockey goalie. You you need range of motion to be able to, to reach kick your positions. legs out. Different. Like, I I can't do that. It's not running. You have about a fifteen degree you know range of motion through your hip. You've got or through through your ankle. Mm. You've got the short range of motions. They've actually found that hamstring flexibility is a, it correlates to negative performance mm-hmm. as in you are less likely to be fast. Think of, you know, a short tight spring versus a slinky. Yep. <laughs> uh, if you can touch your toes, it's not that you're a bad runner by any stretch, but that means that you've got less ability to kind of store energy back. through yep. that. Um, well, when we talk about it in our world is like the more flexible you are, if you're that person that can bring your leg up by your head kind of thing, that's more range that you have to have the strength to control. And so if you're just that person that you lay on your back and you can stick your foot up towards the ceiling, which is definitely more than normal, um, that's less range that you have to control than the person who could bring their leg up by their head when they're laying down, you know? So even just from a control and strength perspective, that plays along with exactly what you're saying. And then on top of that, that's what makes you that spring that you could load and explode more easily. Yeah. And then too, it's, it's funny because, and, and you can talk about this from the physical therapy side, but stretching has been long kind of touted as a remedy for so many different ailments, but they've actually shown in studies that before, after, you know, it's not prophylactic in any way. It doesn't prevent any pain or injury. It doesn't, 
you know, it, there's basically no real good reason for it. And in some cases, it can actually be a negative. I mean, you'll lose power output. Yep. But then for things like Achilles tendinopathy, hamstring tendinopathy, 100%. gluteal tendinopathy, those kind of injuries are actually irritated by that stretching. Exactly. Well, and I like especially if you're talking about like the long hold stretching where you're sitting there for 30 to 60 seconds. I mean, think about it. That's actually a, a technique that's used to kind of like relax or calm down the muscle or really increase its length. Do you really want to like down regulate something before you're about to go do an explosive action such as running like that very much it doesn't set the table correctly for what you're about to do you know um we'll tell people some people say what about stretching after and i say well if it helps you feel better as long if you have a range of motion deficit and you're seeing someone and they say i need you to do x y and z stretch it's for a purpose but if you have total range of motion and you ask me hey can i stretch after i run i'll say does it help you feel better? And if you say, yeah, then I say, okay, that's fine. You know, there's definitely some subjective benefits of things like that if that helps you feel better. But outside of that, that's really about it. Interesting kind of study that goes a little bit alongside this is the Australian Ballet Company, you know, one of the most touted in the world. Um, they did a multi-year study where obviously you think ballet dancers, they stretch a ton, right? They have to have all these crazy ranges of motion. Well, they kind of split in half and Half of the group actually did strength exercises and the other stayed with their stretches. And interestingly enough, the dancers who did the strength work, they actually did not lose an ounce of range of motion from what they had previously. And they had less injury incidents. So again, kind of like feeding into all these things that we keep saying, you know, if ballet dancers can do it. I think we can do it too in the running world. Yeah, we always taught, I mean, I, I was taught, and then when I helped teach classes, a long muscle is a strong muscle, mm-hmm. and, and it kind of goes both ways. Yeah. If you get stronger, that muscle actually lengthens. Mm-hmm. So it brings back to strength training is almost always the answer. Yeah. Uh, so, yep. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And just a little quick side note, if you are having tendon pain, things like that, stretching can actually be provocative uh, for pain. Um, because oftentimes, tendons who are under stress like that, they don't adjust well to being pulled on like that. So if you're having tendon pain, we'll do another podcast on that another day, but see someone to better understand what you should be doing before and after activity. So following the stretching plan here, what about foam rolling? Foam rolling is another one of those things where our understanding of what's happening has evolved a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, When it first came out, it was, oh, we're breaking up adhesions, these knots, you know, we're going to help, you know, flush your body out of all these bad metabolites, the lactic mm-hmm. acid, which is a whole other conversation. <laughs> uh, but our understanding of it has shifted to the point where now it's actually mostly, if you want to think of it this way, mostly uh, like a pain relief mm-hmm. kind of mechanism. It desensitizes uh, your nerves. Yeah, exactly. It, it, uh, there you're, are, you're basically creating pain and discomfort to desensitize yourself from pain and discomfort. Yeah, it's, it's essentially, you know, you stub your toe and then you, you know, mallet your hand just to not yep. have your toe hurt as much. Yeah, it, yeah. it works. Uh, I mean, and there, there are some other benefits too, actually. Yeah. F- foam rolling has been shown that people that do it actually sleep better. Uh, mm-hmm. They've got lower levels of arterial going through stiffness. the act of recovery. Really. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I'm sure part of it is yeah. just taking that time yeah. to do one thing and focus. Which <laughs> is, is good. It's a whole other thing too, but... Yeah, lower arterial stiffness, which is a good predictor for uh, heart attack, you know, stroke, those kind yeah. of things. So there are a lot of, you know, ancillary benefits to it, mm-hmm. but... It's not what we thought it was. Exactly. kind of what you'd say. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I mean, again, that's another thing. Somebody asked me, like, should I be foam rolling? 
I mean, we know now that it, we can't say that it lengthens tissues. It doesn't change the state of the tissue. It actually takes like one or 2000 pounds of force or more to quote unquote lengthen the IT band. And that's only a few, like it's like a half a centimeter. So everyone who thinks that foam rolling can lengthen a tight IT band, you shouldn't I'll be send you the article. <laughs> rolling your IT band. Anyway, that's a, yeah. <laughs> talking about stretching being irritable to a tendinopathy type issue that foam rolling mm-hmm. an IT band that's upset. Is just it's only going to make it more upset. Beating up an upset tissue already. Absolutely. So again, moment of perspective that, you know, these things, again, if someone asks me in general, as long as they don't have a current injury that they're treating, um, they say, you know, should I foam roll? And I say, well, does it make you feel better afterwards? If you say yes, and I say, sure, go ahead. I said, my my general round of advice is just don't dig to China. <laughs> I have some people that want to like dig and dig and dig until they feel like everything is gone. Just, you know, use it as an adjunct. Like you're saying, I think it's more the active recovery and doing things to care for your body. That's a positive. But basically with that, we can definitely say that there's, you know, it's not what we used to kind of tout it to be. Yeah, and it can be a great uh, core workout too. I mean, just, just by, and, and for like elderly populations it's a great practice to get down to the ground and back up mm-hmm. or or things like that too yeah yeah but i would say in general you know we would kind of say that you know stretching and foam rolling those are less things that would actually go into that injury prevention category but you know self-care if it works for you and it's appropriate but again just kind of take these concepts of what we're sharing with you about what it's doing to your body and decide if that's something that really is a need for you okay so I think we've really covered our bases. We've talked about mileage, ramping up, how much should we do, you know, benefits of warming up and strength training, and then everything when it comes to foot strike and cadence and then all of our body care. So I hope that you guys have found a few things in this conversation that maybe can apply to your thought process as you're prepping for your spring. Um, but so now I get to subject uh, Jack to the lightning round. This will be short, I promise, but it's always fun to have a few fun questions. Uh, Okay, so these are questions that I know that Jack doesn't. So, fastest mile time ever? For me or Mm -hmm. ever run? For you. Uh, It was a converted 200 flat track, but it comes out to a 405 something. I I should know my PR, but I I don't. It's 405, 406. (laughs) That's still a pretty painful mile. Yeah, more painful because, I mean, every runner says this, but I believe I had more in the tank. And like, I had run workouts that said I should have run a few seconds faster. And wow. That, that's, yeah, I'm over it, clearly. Watching a four-minute mile, though, is pretty intense. It's like watching bodies just fly at the end of a finish. I've seen it. I've been there before, but that's pretty impressive. Okay, next one. If you had to live on a desert island for the rest of your life and you could only take one food, what would it be? One food. This is different than than the you know your last meal if you're wrongly convicted of a crime or something. Like that. <laughs> um, I would say, and that's tough. Probably tacos. Oh. Uh, tacos or fried rice. I, I am, oh. I'm a big sucker for for fried rice. That's an interesting take. Okay, these are all very interesting questions. These are all if you were okay. <laughs> if you were a shoe, what one would you be? I would probably be the Saucony Endorphin Speed because it's still pretty fast, but there are definitely faster things out there now. That's awesome. Okay, last one. If you were a donut, what would you be? 
Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, I would say I am uh, like a yeast-raised Oreo donut. Wow. Uh, vanilla frosting with, with just the crumbled Oreos on top. Uh, uh, I don't necessarily have a good logic for that. I just like that type of donut. That's amazing. I love it. All right. Well, thank you, Jack, for joining us today. You can follow Jack on Twitter, social media, kind of Instagram, right? on at Infinity Run Co. Um, or you can find him online at www.infinityrunco.com. So thanks to our listeners for joining us today on the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast, and we look forward to seeing you on the next one. Hey, Dr. Michael here. I want to say a sincere thank you for taking the time to listen to that episode. I hope you got a lot out of it. Dr. Brett, Lauren, and I are all extremely passionate about this podcast and trying to use it to help share high-quality, factual information and debunk some of the common myths and misconceptions that we see around athletic performance and rehabilitation. If you have a minute, we would sincerely appreciate you taking the time to leave a rating and review on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a teammate, coach, or colleague who you think may benefit. We want as many people to be able to hear and listen to this information as possible. Lastly, if you are on social media, head over to our page at MKE Sports Podcast or at kinetic underscore SMP to follow us so that you get all the latest information. We love to engage, so leave a comment on this podcast. Tell us what you learned or feel free to ask us a question. We sincerely appreciate all of the support and we look forward to seeing you guys on the next episode.